Evidence and answers. Is belief in God rational or an irrational leap of faith? Is God simply a created idea of man who needs comfort in this vast universe? Or is there compelling reasons to believe in an intelligent creator? Is atheism or belief in God a reasonable choice? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we want to invite you to Pat's opening message given at this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme was Christianity and Science, Enemies or Allies. Pat opened the conference with this message entitled, Why I Believe in God. Listen as Pat presents several compelling reasons why the evidence makes belief in an intelligent creator the most reasonable choice. The radiation echo or the radiation afterglow discovered by Penzias and Wilson. Discovered the afterglow that comes from a huge atomic explosion. The ratio of elements that exist in the universe. The second law of thermodynamics, that the universe is running out of usable energy, all point to the conclusion that the universe has a beginning. And now the vast majority of those in science agree the universe is not eternal, but the universe has a beginning. One of the most brilliant minds of our time, Dr. Stephen Hawking, writes this. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Atheist and Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg wrote this. In the beginning there was an explosion. Not an explosion like those familiar on Earth, but an explosion which occurred simultaneously. Everywhere, filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other particle. At the Big Bang, time, matter, and energy all came into being. The universe arose from nothing. As stated in the words of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Since the universe has a beginning, the universe has a cause. And we must identify what is the most reasonable cause for the existence and beginning of this universe. Along with the law of causality comes the law of cause and effect. Whatever created the universe is greater than the universe, for every effect has a cause, and no effect is greater than its cause. Since the universe has a beginning, it must have a cause that is greater than it. When the universe began, time, matter, and energy exploded into being. Whatever created time, matter, and energy is eternal, all-powerful, all-wise, and omnipresent, present everywhere. And God is a very reasonable cause. The second evidence comes from the, what we see as design in the universe, from microbiology to astronomy, from the microscope to the telescope. Evidence of design is all around us. This is the design argument. And it goes like this. Every design has a designer. The universe has highly complex design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. Creation every day points its finger to the creator. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. Paul expounds upon this. 
Here's a famous example. Suppose you crashed in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you survived and you managed all alone to make it to what appears to be an uninhabited island. Wherever you look, there does not appear to be anyone there. However, the next day, you get up and you walk along the beach and you discover a watch in the sand. What would you immediately assume? There's someone else on this island who dropped this watch. No one would assume the wind, the rain, the lightning, and the natural forces put together the watch. There's just too much complexity and design. We would immediately assume there's someone else on this island that dropped this watch. Now the components of the watch are all here upon this earth. But none of us would assume natural forces could put something so complex together. There is too much complexity and order. As we study the universe, it shows that there is evidence of a divine watchmaker. From the microscope to the telescope, there's evidence of design. Now, our speakers who will follow me will expound on a lot of these things, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on this. In the last 40 years, scientists have discovered that the universe is extremely fine-tuned for it to exist and for it to sustain any life. The forces that sustain the universe are delicately balanced and sit on a razor's edge. For example, the force of gravity is precisely tuned so that the universe expands at just the right rate. If the force of gravity were just a fraction weaker, the universe would expand faster. But then, matter would disperse too quickly so that none of it would clump enough to form planets and galaxies. If the force of gravity were a fraction stronger, the universe would expand too slowly and matter would clump so effectively the universe would collapse into a super dense lump before any solar type stars or galaxies could form. Astronomer Hugh Ross states, the expansion rate cannot differ by more than one part in 10 to the 55th power. That's how precisely tuned the forces in our universe are. When it comes to the microscope, microbiology has made remarkable discoveries of design. One of the most powerful is DNA. What makes DNA such a compelling evidence of design is that an incredible amount of information is contained in a single cell. There's 1,200 to 2,000 letters or bases that are needed to build just one protein. It's highly improbable that a single protein molecule could form by chance. Dr. Stephen Meyer states that the probability of the right amino acids forming the precise sequence needed to form one protein molecule is one chance in a hundred thousand trillion, 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 trillion. That's a 10 with 125 zeros behind it to form one protein. He further states that this would be the odds for just one protein molecule. A minimally complex cell needs between three and five hundred protein molecules. 
Dr. Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, a man who probably knows more about genetics than anyone, stated at the completion of his work of mapping out the entire human genome, he wrote this, it's a happy day for the world. It is humbling and awe-inspiring for me that we caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book, previously only known to God. Even outspoken atheists, the leader of the new atheist movement, Richard Dawkins, states, the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. The pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. Now, in comparing DNA to a computer program, Microsoft's CEO Bill Gates stated that DNA is far, far, far more complex than any software ever created. We would not assume that the Microsoft Windows program was the result of a monkey banging on a computer and he just got lucky. In fact, those of you in the computer field and my friends in computer programming spend hours studying programs looking for the one or two digit error that keeps a program from working properly. One or two digits out of sequence in a very complex program can ruin the system. The sequencing in DNA code is even more complex and precise in its sequencing. What best accounts for this design? Chance or an intelligent designer? I will say it's more reasonable to conclude an intelligent designer. Scientists, both Christian and non-Christian, are beginning to realize the evidence for an intelligent designer is quite compelling. The more we discover through the microscope and the telescope, more and more it's beginning to point to intelligent design. Here's some quotes from men who don't buy into a Christian worldview. Dr. Robert Griffiths, winner of the Heinemann Award in Mathematics, the highest award given in the mathematical sciences, stated, if we need an atheist to debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. Agnostic astronomer, Dr. Robert Jastrow, award-winning astronomer, writes this, for the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. A third line of evidence is found in our intuitive sense of right and wrong, the moral law that is written upon our hearts. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 2. We all ascribe to a universal moral law. Every individual has a moral understanding of right and wrong. There are some moral principles we begin with that all mankind understands and accepts as true. Murder, rape, adultery, stealing is wrong in every culture. Those who do not view these actions as wrong are considered morally handicapped and unable to function in society. These individuals we place in institutions. Now a universal moral law points to a moral law giver. The argument goes like this. Every law has a law giver. 
there is an absolute moral law that we all ascribe to. Therefore, there is an absolute moral lawgiver. You see, morality is not connected with nature. It's connected with personhood. Nature doesn't demonstrate a moral conscience. When a tsunami comes, it doesn't just wipe out criminals. It wipes out men, women, and children. The animal kingdom does not demonstrate any kind of moral conscience. A lion will kill a baby as it will an adult. The fact that we can identify evil and what is unjust reveals an understanding in all people of a universal moral law. C.S. Lewis stated this, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has come to some idea of what a straight line is. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? You know, in a radio discussion I had with an atheist, I said, you know, he asked me the question. He said, if God exists, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And I said, would you define evil for me? And he didn't want to. You know, and I said, how do you define evil? Because if something is objectively evil, there's an absolute moral standard of good from which we have departed. Where did that absolute moral standard of good come from? It must come from a moral lawgiver. Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest philosophers, after criticizing the traditional proofs for God, in the end stated this, two things fill my mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the oftener and more steadily we reflect on them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. A universal moral law points to a moral law giver. Fourth, the God who created the universe has invaded our creation in the person of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are a very accurate historical work written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And we have quite compelling evidence for that. Therefore, they are connected with first-generation eyewitness accounts. The early date shows the testimony of the disciples of Jesus were carefully scrutinized and verified by the eyewitnesses who were still alive who had witnessed these events. Had the Gospels been fiction, there are just too many eyewitnesses who could have verified these accounts as false, and the Gospel accounts would not have lasted. Now, Jesus claimed to be the divine Son of God and confirmed his claim through his miraculous, sinless life and resurrection from the dead. Jesus, who claimed to be the divine Son of God, prophesied and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead, something no other man or person in history has ever done. In the miracles that Jesus did, he demonstrated authority over all, every realm of creation. And Jesus fulfilled a miraculous number of prophecies. No other person in the history of the world has such a legacy of fulfilled prophecy as Jesus Christ. Now, the life of Christ culminates in the Resurrection. And there are several established facts regarding the resurrection that 
scholars are agreed upon. Christian, non-Christian, liberal, conservative, we're agreed upon these facts. These are the minimal facts. First, Jesus died by means of Roman crucifixion. Not only do we have the New Testament, which is a first century account written by eyewitnesses or their very close associates, Roman and Jewish historians confirm a historical Jesus and that he died by means of Roman crucifixion. Roman historian Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Jewish works such as the Talmud and Josephus confirm a historical Jesus who lived a very unique life and who was crucified. The evidence is so compelling. Even liberal critic John Dominic Crossan, man who denies 80% of the Gospels as historic, states that he, Jesus, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can be. Even Bart Ehrman, a man who denies the resurrection of Christ, affirms the crucifixion of Jesus. So Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Second, the tomb site was known and was found empty on the third day. See, the apostles preached the resurrection in the very same city where these events took place and Christ was crucified. If their message was false, it could have been easily shown to have been false for the tomb site was known and identified. The gospel writers go out of their way to tell you where Jesus was buried, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish council. Now, it would have been a complete disaster for the gospel writers to name such a high-profile Jewish figure and make him up as fiction, because that fact could have been easily verified by the eyewitnesses. And when Paul and the apostles preach in the book of Acts, they appeal to the facts and to their audience, saying, all of you know these facts. Third, we have the resurrection appearances. Jesus' followers reported that he appeared to them bodily after his death and burial. The first recorded witness of Jesus' resurrection were women, John chapter 20 and Matthew 28. This would have been extremely unlikely, if the story were fabricated because at this time Jewish courts did not regard the testimony of women as reliable and we also have what's called the principle of embarrassment often a historical work is viewed legitimate if the authors are willing to report and record embarrassing things about themselves the apostles record that they were hiding and it was only the women who are brave enough to go and visit the tomb of Jesus. Fourth, we have the sudden transformation of the lives of the apostles. The apostles were frightened and ran away from any association with Jesus. But within just a few days, they returned and preached in the very city where Christ was crucified, in the face of the audience that had put Jesus to death, preaching, hey, you know the guy you just hung on a cross, he is the resurrected, risen Messiah of Israel, and you need to bow your knee and worship him. Most of the apostles, all of them, died a brutal death or lived a persecuted life. If the tomb were not really empty 
and the apostles had not really seen the risen Christ, what could have motivated them in the face of such persecution and death for what they knew to be a complete lie? History shows us no one will die for what they know and can confirm to be a lie. Fifth, we have a massive Jewish societal transformation. What accounts for thousands of Jews suddenly abandoning major tenets of the Jewish faith? What accounts for thousands of Jews suddenly no longer worshiping on the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, and suddenly worshiping on Sunday? What accounts for thousands of Jews no longer going to the temple to offer the sacrifices because it had been fulfilled in this man, Jesus Christ? What accounts for thousands of Jews suddenly abandoning major tenets of this faith? Six, the preaching, uh, the origin of the church was built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, the preaching begins in the city of Jerusalem, in the very city where these events occurred. Had this all been fabricated, had this not been true, had it been purely legendary, this would be the worst place to preach the resurrection. Because all the events took place there in Jerusalem, and the eyewitnesses were still there. For example, if I were to go to the city of Dallas and begin preaching my published work that John F. Kennedy, after he was assassinated, three days later rose from the dead and was found in the government halls there in Dallas preaching and healing the sick and raising the dead and that he was in the Prestonwood Baptist, a church of 15,000, preaching and teaching and performing miracles. If I were there in the city of Dallas preaching this kind of message, claiming my book is the most accurate biography of John F. Kennedy, how long would my book and my message last in the city of Dallas? Probably not even more than a couple of hours. Why? Well, there's too many eyewitnesses even to this day who are alive to see things, who witness the things that happened to JFK and know that he did not resurrect from the dead or do the things that I was proclaiming. That'd be the same situation with the apostles. How could they go into Jerusalem and preach that Jesus was a real historical person who did these miracles, who was crucified, and his grave is empty, had that not been true. Their message would not have lasted. So look at these facts. What is the best explanation for just these minimal facts? Well, the resurrection provides the best and most reasonable explanation for these facts. All alternative explanations have failed. Throughout the years, men and women have tried naturalistic explanations of the resurrection, and they have all miserably failed. The resurrection provides the most reasonable explanation for the empty tomb. Jesus Christ was a real historical person who lived a miraculous life he was crucified and rose from the dead. Well, the hand of God is evident through his son, Jesus Christ, and through his creation. Are Christianity and science at irreconcilable odds? No. In fact, 
It's the Christian worldview that gave birth to the modern sciences. The men who founded many of the areas of modern sciences were men with a strong, deep belief in God and an intelligent designer and that the universe was an ordered universe designed by a rational, reasonable creator. And therefore, the universe was ordered and the design of the designer could be discovered. Science and Christianity were allies for centuries, and it's only in recent times have they been made out to be enemies. Now, this weekend, you'll discover that creation points its finger every day to a creator. The studies of the heavens do indeed declare the glory of God. And Christianity is not a bunch of facts to be known, but indeed a relationship with a living loving and powerful God who invites us to experience a wonderful relationship with him. For these reasons that I presented, this is why I am a believer in God, and I invite you this weekend to discover the truth and love of God revealed in the creation he has made. Thank you very much. Pat's opening message, entitled, Why I Believe in God, given at this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme this year was Christianity and Science, Enemies or Allies, and featured speakers included Dr. Fazal Rana and Dr. Paul Nelson. If you would like to hear all of the seminars from this year's conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen and purchase all the sessions from Pat and his guests. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetics Center. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.